0: Isaiah 57 for tonight's study. We're gaining some ground, and um, we have three chapters here tonight that I'd like to attempt to get through, Lord willing, uh, um, because they're kind of the heavy, heaviest of chapters here in the last section of the book of Isaiah. Remember, 66 chapters that sort of correspond with the 66 books of the Bible, uh, there have been teachings done on, on the correlation between chapters and books and and definitely the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see sort of the Old Testament, you know, in the, in the first section of Isaiah, and then you see uh, sort of the New Testament, if you would, in the last half. Um, but one of the things that I like about this tonight is you say, Brett, tonight's not very New Testament-y. Uh, it's kind of heavy. Um, and it is because it's about the wicked. Now, There's a view out there that I wanna try to do my best to undo. And that is that the Old Testament's blood and guts and wrath and judgment and death. And the New Testament's love, grace, mercy, and kindness. Um, And we like the New Testament. That's what people say, that's what pastors have said. Let's unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, some goofy pastors have said. Don't listen to those guys, that's just wrong. We need to stay, keep the Bible hitched. (laughs) The two go together hand in hand and without one word, poorer. Uh, with only one of the Testaments. They're both very important. And, um, and so um, one of the misnomers, though, is that, you know, the Old Testament's the, the bummer, and the New Testament's the blessing. But I want to tell you that the blessings and the bummers are handed out equally in the Old Testament and the New. Um, sin is still called sin in the, old te- in the New Testament, as it is the Old but salvation is still called salvation in the Old Testament as it is in the New. It's just, you know, it's showing a story. It's unfolding the whole general, um, you know, issue of human- humanity's big problem. And the big problem is our own sin. And, um, and so Isaiah chapters 57, 58, and 59 deal with the wicked, the wicked, the sinful uh, people. We started this discussion, by the way, on Sunday. I did a whole teaching on the wicked. And what is wickedness? And um, the Lord, when he calls something wicked, it's wicked. The end. And the, the culture we live in, they, they don't like to agree with God on what is wicked and what is not. Well, that was the case for the Israelis during the time of Isaiah. He's going to call them out on some of their most wicked deeds. And it's going to be pretty heavy. We're going to see that tonight. Um, now, there were a very few who were called the righteous. Righteous who were righteous because, well, the same reason. Um, It says that Abraham, the father of the Jews, believed God and it was counted unto him for what? Righteousness. If you said righteousness, that's correct. Um, It's because he believed. God counted that to righteousness. He wasn't a righteous man. He made mistakes practically. He sinned normally as as a person would, but he was declared righteous by God. And later on in the book of Romans, we'd realize that the same righteousness Abraham got by just believing um, is the same righteousness you and I get. And whether you're Abraham or us, it's still by the righteousness of Jesus who died for the sins of the whole world, including Abraham, the Jews during this time, and our lives as well. Jesus died once for all sin. And so really, we don't want to disconnect from this Old Testament stuff because really this wickedness that's described in Isaiah 57, 58, 58, and 59, is the same wickedness we find ourselves wallowing in, in modern days, in the uh, United States of America, and in Portland, Oregon. It's it's really heartbreaking. And so it is a bit heavy. And then next week, praise the Lord, we're going to have light and glory and some great news. Uh, and I'm going to love getting into some of that. So let's plow through this. Strap on your safety belt. What does the Lord think about the wicked? Here we go. In Isaiah 57, 1, it says, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And, a merciful, men, uh, and merciful men are t- taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. So he starts off talking about the wicked, saying the, the righteous are basically going to be at peace. Why? Because they're going to die. <laughs> that's, you might be saying, I don't know if I want to be one of the righteous, if that's what their peace comes from is death. But you also have to remember, folks, that death for the believer is the best day of your life. You know, we, I think we forget that, that, you know, um, that righteousness, um, if you're declared righteous, that means when you stand before God someday, he'll say, enter in thou good and faithful servant. Uh, that is to heaven and eternity with the Lord. And it might just be that even as a a person who's been saved by the grace of God and declared righteousness by the Lord, it might just be that you may not really have peace in this world um, as much as you'll have peace apart from this world through Jesus Christ. Peace give I to you, not as the world gives, Jesus said, give I thee. Um, See, we experience a peace that comes from God and the peace of God that passes understanding, passes all logic, and ability to see and what have you. We get that through Jesus Christ. Now the wicked, that's a whole other story that we're gonna see here in a minute. But the righteous, now there's a a hint here of something that I gotta point out. um, And it has to do with the Hebrew text. If you go to the Hebrew text of this passage, when it says, um, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. The Hebrew reads perhaps even more accurately um, that the righteous are gathered um, in, the righteous are gathered in, out of the way of evil. That's what it says. The Lord will gather the righteous in, out of the way of evil. Now, you say, Brett, that's, that's not that much different. It is, because that's, that's the nature of God. God never destroys the righteous with the wicked. Brett, are you saying you see the rapture in verses uh, 1 and 2 here? Well, I wouldn't use this for a proof text on the rapture. Um, well, Brett, the rapture is not even in the Bible. The word rapture. Correct. Um, it's, it's coming from First Thessalonians chapter 4. When we are alive and rain, we'll be caught up in the air to meet him. It says. The word caught up in the English trans- translation. The Greek translation, harpazo, caught up. And the Latin translation, rapture. That's where the word rapture came from. So even though the Bible doesn't say the word rapture, it talks about how two people will be in a field. One will disappear and one will be left standing there. You know, uh, that's, that's, there's a lot of the Bible that talks about the rapture of the church where, where we'll be taken to be with the Lord. And, and this, this is one of those parts of God's nature that helps confirm in, in my understanding of the Bible how God never pours out His wrath on the righteous. Um, that's why First Thessalonians 4 and 5 tells us that we as the righteous, who are declared righteous by God through the cross of Jesus by His grace, Um, We are not appointed into wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Man, I love that we're saved by grace and we're not appointed to wrath. So before the wrath of God is poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world, we're gonna be, like this verse says, the righteous will be taken away from the evil to come. Or as in the Hebrew text text here, are gathered in, out of the way of evil. So I have great hope. Uh, There's nothing the rapture wouldn't solve. Any problem that I'm dealing with, any world issue that's going on, the rapture solves that for us. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to that date. But until then, we're, of course, supposed to serve the Lord, walk with the Lord, occupy until he comes. Um, But something to look forward to, for sure. So he kind of deals just really quickly with the righteous. They'll be taken out of the way. But the wicked? Well, that's where we pick up in verse 3. It says, but draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore? Against whom do you sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw a tongue? Um, are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks? Wow. The Lord hits it hard through Isaiah the prophet right here. He he calls them out as sorceresses and the seeds of adulterers and the whore. Children of adulterers. Now, you say, Brett, this is kind of sexual in nature, uh, what the Lord is talking about here. Yep. But you got to remember that there's this imagery that we picked up even last Wednesday where God calls uh, Israel the wife of God. Remember, the New Testament church is called the bride of Christ. But Israel is called the wife of God, and the problem is Israel, the picture that God paints of the Jews in the Old Testament is as adulteresses, that they were unfaithful to their husband, that is God, and they turned to other gods. That's the imagery. God wants us to see sort of this vile behavior as prostitution and adultery and children of the prostitute. That's the the condition of the Jews. And, and then it even gets worse. Inflamed, as it says there, they're burning with sort of a passion there as it says in, in verse 5 with idols. You see, uh, you know, now the problem is some of the idols they worship did involve sexual uh, promiscuity and weirdness and all that. So there is sort of a sexual nature, a perverse nature to um, this idolatry that God is calling the Jews out in. But but it's also um, speaking of this, uh, the sacrificing of children. It says, the slaying of the children in the valleys. Whoever slayed children in the, in the valleys? Well, the Jews did, and one of the most horrible times was of course during the reign of Solomon. Solomon worshiped Moloch and Chemosh, those gods where they would do that in the Valley of Hinnom. In the Valley of Hinnom, that, that's called the Valley of Gehenna or the Valley of Hell. It's a beautiful little park right now if you drive there in Jerusalem. But it's a place where in Solomon's time they took these big iron gods that had a uh, you know they stoked a big hot fire in the belly of these gods and it would and then the gods have these iron arms like this and um, and they would heat it up to where the arms would be red hot and then they would place their children on the arms of Moloch sizzling them to death on these. Uh, horrible gods. And it's really a hor- horrifying picture. Um, any group or people that sacrifice their children um, for religious you know, stuff, it's just, it's just uh, grotesque and evil at its deepest core. You might say, well, Brett, I'm so glad that we don't sacrifice our children like they did back then. I'd say we do it worse. We are worse as a culture and a people group than they were in Jerusalem in the Valley of Hell, Gehenna. Why did they call it the Valley of Hell? It's because it's people shrieked. Women would shriek with horror as they took their babies um, and put them on the arms of these gods. And they would pound these drums to try to drown out the screaming babies and the crying mothers. And it was just this horrifying, dark, evil practice. But we, in our culture, instead of Moloch, we go to these Planned Parenthood clinics and we sacrifice babies on the altar of convenience or not ready for a baby or whatever reason people give for um, unwanted pregnancies as they call them. And it's heartbreaking when you see how vile it is, the practice of abortion. If you're you're pro-choice as they call it, which is such a rhetoric on a twisting of things, pro-choice, it sounds so positive. You need to call it pro-murder, pro-death, pro- pro I'm sorry, but chopping up of babies limb from limb and pulling them out piece by piece from the mother's womb. It's, it's the most horrifying. Listen to the former uh, abortion doctor exp- explain before Congress with tools in his hand. He explains, here's how you do an abortion. And people were gasping in, in, in Congress as he was explaining how an abortion takes place. Um, it, it's, we're in a very interesting place as a nation. Um, people are freaking out tonight. Why? Because Ruth Bader Ginsburg died this couple days ago and and, um, and everybody's trying to say, oh, what a great woman she was. She stood up for women's rights. Um, no, she was uh, very much into, not into women that were in the womb, future women. Uh, she was very pro-Roe versus R- Wade and abortion. And so now the uh, people that are pro uh, death, pro-abortion, um, they're nervous because the next SCOTUS, uh, Supreme Court of the United States nominee, could tilt the, the Supreme Court away from Roe versus Wade. And so there's this huge controversy right now. People are flipped out right now. But man, this, if you ask me, this is our one last chance as a nation to, to right the wrong that was done with Roe versus Wade. And um, uh, fortunately, abortion is on the decline. That's not good, nearly good enough for anything, really. But you know, there was over a million babies aborted every year for um, for the longest of time. But somewhere around, I think 2013 or so, uh, abort- abortion started to dec- decline in numbers, which was great because uh, people started seeing the science. You know, people started seeing the, the scans and the ultrasounds, the 3D imaging of the little baby in the mother's womb, and it's undeniable. Even at an early stage of pregnancy, if even at 14 weeks, I remember Deb and I had one of our children an ultrasound at 14 weeks, and man, the little fingers and hands and feet and a, just a little person in there being formed um, by the Lord. That's, see, that's why we Christians are anti-abortion is because God says that he is forming the, the baby in the mother's womb, and it's, it's a person. God calls it a person in the mother's womb. It's not a fetal tissue. It's not a fetus it's, it's, a, it's a person. And um, who's going to stand up for the rights of that person? Well, definitely not Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She uh, um, promoted abortion for a long time. Now, now um, we have more in the num- number of uh, 800,000 babies aborted in the United States every year. Uh, we won't even talk about the rest of the world. But um, people say, why are you Christians not so worried about coronavirus? I'll tell you why. Because we have something at least four times worse, at least four times worse than the coronavirus. And it's been around for decades, not just, you know, six or eight months. You know, people say, well, we reached the 200,000 mark of deaths. Um, That's nothing compared to abortion each year. Four times the amount of children are killed in the mother's womb. So forgive us if we're not as concerned about the coronavirus. Um, As Christians, we are more concerned about the life of babies well, Britt, people are just going to have sex. What do you do? Um, well, that's that's a whole other discussion. But truthfully, the Bible tells us that sex belongs inside of marriage. Call me a religious prude or say that that's impossible. But God who made you says, here's how it works. You, you get married, you have babies, you become a family. Um, our world says, we're going di- to, uh, you know, we're going to... Uh, destroy the nuclear family, who cares about mothers and fathers, and, and we're going to abort babies, and it takes a village and all this nonsense. No. Uh, I, this, is a, this is a chance for our nation right now to repent of the evil of abortion. And so I think we as Christians should be praying. This is a really key time, um, and it's worse than Moloch and Chemosh and the slaying of children in the Valley of Ghana. What we're doing uh, in with abortion is just evil, and it's wrong. And, um, you know, some of you might say, you're being brutal. Uh, I had abortion when I was a teenager and you're being brutal. Well, here's the truth of the matter. Um, That's one of the most horrible sins. uh, Along with so many other sins, there's a lot of horrible sins. That's a big sin, but good news for you. Um, Abortion is not the unpardonable sin. If you've been one, or if you're a boy who uh, slept with a girl and got her pregnant and you encouraged her, you're equally uh, guilty, maybe even more so. Um, and, and, and the bad news is the wage of that sin is death and hell. But the good news is that the Lord forgives us of our sins, even the sin of abortion. And if you're one who's had an abortion, I want you to know that you can confess that to the Lord and, and, and uh, you know, say, Lord, I have sinned against you with this. And the Lord is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Um, that's the grace of God. So I have this difficult job. Do I, I want to point out the horrifying ugliness of abortion on one side of this. And then I also need to explain that it's not the unpardonable sin. Um, there's only one unpardonable sin. We can talk about that in another Bible study. Um, that's to reject the Lord altogether. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what it's called. But all that, all that to say, we need to be praying uh, because this, this seems to me like maybe a moment in our country's life as a nation to write something that is is worse than slavery. We have that black mark of slavery on our history which we all wish we could undo. Um, Someday, should the Lord tarry, I think we're gonna have a nation where we're gonna wish that we could undo the horrors of abortion. Millions and millions of babies aborted Since, since Roe versus Wade over 60 something million uh, babies have been murdered. It's, it's just the biggest atrocity of all. And, um, and I just can't speak more pointedly or more powerfully uh, uh, enough, really, uh, to, to try to wake up our nation. Uh, so all that to say, Brett, this is really depressing. Thanks a lot. You know, Wednesday night on a rainy, dark night, talking about abortion. Well, this is what the Lord would call wickedness when people sacrifice their children uh, that, that's, 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 this is God speaking to a wicked people. God forbid that we be a part of that. Um, I hope that you're not part of that. I hope you're not pro-choice. Uh, we have no choice when it comes to murder. Um, we, we, uh, it's, it's against the word of God on every way you shake it down. So um, that's what it says here, verse five. Inflaming yourselves with the idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys and the cliffs of the rocks, that's what they were doing. Now, by the way, you know, a couple of scriptures about that, by the way. Um, Psalm 139. Listen to this. This is the psalmist writing about the, the, the child in the womb of the mother. In Psalm 139, verse 13, it says, For thou hast possessed my reins, and thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. This is Psalmist David acknowledging that God protected David while he was in his mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made marvelous are thy works, that thy, my soul knoweth right well. My substance, when I was not hid from thee, when I was made in secret, that's in the womb, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more than the number and the sand, and when I awake, I am still with thee. The precious thoughts of the Lord are in conjunction with his precious thoughts while the baby is in the mother's womb. Uh, That's the context of that scripture we so oft quote about the Lord's thoughts being precious toward us. Those precious thoughts are especially when a baby is being formed in the mother's womb. Well, all that to say, this was one of the evils of even Israel's day during Isaiah the prophet's time, the slaying of children. Well, also verse six, among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They are thy lot, even to them hast thou poured out a drink offering and hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Upon a lofty and high mountain thou hast set thy bed, even thither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. Behind door, the doors also and the posts hast thou set up thy remembrance. For thou hast discovered or uncovered, nakedness is the idea, you've na- you made yourself naked to another other than me and are gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed and made thee a covenant with them. And thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. And thou wentest to the king with ointment and didst increase thy perfumes and didst send thy messengers far off and did debase thyself even unto hell. Isaiah's calling them out saying, man, you guys were prostituting yourselves. And you know, it's interesting. He uses the imagery of smooth stones in a brook. Does anybody remember another story of smooth stones in a brook? 1 Samuel chapter 17, where David took five smooth stones to kill Goliath with. It's almost like the Lord saying that which you could have used for blessing, now you're using as idolatry. And uh, these smooth stones, now you worship and you make sacrifice and burn incense to them. And it's really adultery. And you're exposing your nakedness before these others who is not your wife, if you would. That's the idea of what's happening here. And the Lord's calling them out for their unfaithfulness. And it's leading them right to the very pit of hell. That's what he says in verse 9. Again, the Lord doesn't pull any punches. He, he, he calls it like, like it is, you know. Um, and unless you're going verse by verse through the Bible, chapter by chapter, most pastors aren't gonna read verses like verse nine where, you know, these people are dooming themselves to hell. Uh, some churches, you wouldn't even know hell existed because the pastors are afraid to talk about hell. But the Bible speaks more about hell than it does about heaven. Why? Because I think it should really horrify us we should say, you know what? I really don't want to have anything to do with hell. But this prostituting yourself with wickedness and doing wicked things and just taking up sin after sin and, and worshiping these other gods, Well, Brett, we're not worshiping other gods. Well, like abortion, as abortion is to the worship of Moloch, um, you know, greed and prosperity and materialism is to, uh, you know, Baal worship. When you worshiped Baal, you were trying to be prosperous and you were into material goods. And, and, and if you were into an Ashtoreth, you were into sexual promiscuity and fertility and stuff like that. Um, for every God, there was a notion behind the God that's still alive and well today. We may not have the little gods and goddesses, but we have the same sins of materialism, greed, sexual promiscuity, and stuff like that. It's the same stuff. And it's all called wickedness. And it's part of that thing that will drive a person down to hell, as it says here in verse nine. Man, Isaiah's is telling them, it telling them like it is, um, uh, very important. Verse 10, thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way, yet sets thou not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared? that thou hast lied and hast not remembered me nor laid it to thy heart. Have not I held my peace even of old and thou fearest me not? I will declare thy righteousness and thy works for they shall not profit thee. Um, Basically, people were making a huge mistake here. And this is what the Lord's calling them out of because they were were mistaking God's silence for... um, for non-existence. The people of Israel were mistaking God's silence according to their wicked ways for his non-existence. People do that today, I don't believe in God's existence. Why? Because they think of him as silent. Well, you know, if God is real, why doesn't he reveal himself to us? Well, he has. And um, he visited us with Jesus who came and lived among us and changed the whole world. And he gave us his holy word. But there's still a lot of people saying, well, God's silent, so I must be getting away with my sin. I can do what I want to. And I had an abortion and I feel great about it. I've robbed a bank and who cares? No, I didn't get caught. I've lied, I've cheated, I've stealed, And it seems like God's silent. But don't, here's what Isaiah is saying. Don't mistake God's silence seemingly for his non-existence. That's, that's what Isaiah is trying to call the people out to here in these verses, that God is seeing it all. He, and you, what you think is your righteousness, God's gonna call it out and show you your evil, wicked ways. That's what he says here. Your, your righteousness will not profit you. That's what it says in verse 12. So he goes on in verse 13, it says, when thou criest, let thy companies or thy idols, the groups of idols you have, let them deliver thee. But the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Who is it that would be delivered? Who, who is it that gets the, the you know, the um, the inheritance of the holy mountain? The person who puts his trust in the Lord. Not trusting in these false gods and these false religious systems. For verse 15, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You might say, Brett, this is a little weird. Why does God say, thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity? Um, it sounds prideful to me. God saying, I'm high and lofty and, and um, I inhabit eternity. Well, here's the thing. If you said that, or if I said, I am high and lofty, well, that would be prideful and stupidity. But God is s- simply speaking the truth. If there ever was a high and lofty one, it's God. And, and he's just speaking what is. There's no pride there. It's just saying, this is what it is. God says, I am high and lofty, he is. And he's, he's, it says here, high and lofty, but also eternal. Did you see that? This is important, the one that inhabits eternity. By the way, this answers questions. You know, people, uh, if you wanna know about how did the, the universe begin? What are the origins of the universe and the earth? You know, the evolutionist says there was nothing that became something that became what we see today. At Christian, you know, um, our theology tells us that God preexisted in the beginning, and we just presuppose God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, And they say, well, where did God come from? Well, we don't have to answer that question because, uh (laughs) uh-oh, we just had a little power outage here. Are we still up and running? All right, good. Um, (laughs) Gotta love it, these windy, stormy nights. Um, you know, we, we get to, as Christians say, God always existed, his pre-existence. He always was, always has been, always will be. Um, but here in this verse, this is where we see that, you know, eternal nature of God. Very important. Well, all that to say, um, it says, for thus saith the one uh, that is lofty and um, inhabiteth eternity. Man, that's a, and holy what a description of God there. Um, and we get to be with them if, if, we're part of the humble spirit, those that come with a contrite heart and a humble spirit. Verse 15 tells us that. Um, the prideful cannot coexist with God. That's why Satan was cast out of, of heaven. And so, um, you know, all that to say, uh, when Satan was cast out because of pride, Pride doesn't exist in heaven, it can't. Which really teaches you and me what our job one is. You and I, we should be given to coming before the Lord with a great broken and contrite spirit. What does the Bible say? Well, there's tons of scripture. Psalm 54, pardon me, 34, uh, verse 18, it says, "'The Lord is near unto them that are of a broken heart, "'and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit.'" What does contrite mean? It means to feel sorrow and regret for one's, um, you know, uh, sins or, um, you know, uh, iniquities. Uh, to, be, to be repentant is another way of saying that. To say, I'm a sinner. To come before the Lord broken and humble. Uh, that's Psalm uh, 34, 18. But not only that, um, we see it uh, in Psalm 138, uh, verse 6. Let me read that to you. It says, um, in Psalm 138, six, it says, "'Though the Lord be high, yet he hath respect unto the lowly, "'but to the proud he knoweth afar off.'" If you're a prideful person, the Lord knows you off in the distance. But if you're a humble person, he brings you near to himself. The Lord is near to them that are of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's the idea here. And that's what um, Isaiah 57 verse 15 is telling us. The Lord is high and lofty, and if we want to be with him, we have to come lowly and humbly. Um, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and what does the Bible say? He will lift you up to his high and lofty, eternal, holy place in glory. Um, so that's a real key for us, is to be humble. Well, it goes on in verse 16, For I will not contend forever, Either will I, um, neither will I always be wroth or angry. For the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was wroth and smote him. I hid me and was wroth. And he went on forwardly, or wickedly is, um, is the idea there. And in the way of his heart, I have seen his ways. I will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips Peace, peace to him that is afar off and to him that is near, saith, Lord, I will heal him. Um, You know, God is gracious and he's gonna even forgive and um, he's not gonna always be angry. Um, And the, the question is why? Why would God not always be angry? The answer is Jesus. Jesus would come and deal with our unrighteousness and so the wrath of God will not always be held against us because of Christ. So that's the righteous. They're going to be uh, saved. Verses 16 through 19. But the wicked, verse 20, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now, if you were with us on Sunday, uh, we went over this passage, uh, verses 20 and 21, and um, and, uh, talked about the wicked. So, Uh, it's going to be important for you to catch up on that one. Well, we continue in verse 1 of chapter 58. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They asked of me the ordinance of justice and they take delight in approaching God. Now, Verses one and two say that you know they need to cry out with a loud trumpet sound. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their sins, because they gather to me like they're righteous, but they're really not. Now, what does this mean? Some of you, maybe if you listen to my teaching on Sunday, you might have said, you "Shouldn't have been so hard on the wicked, talking about sin." Um, uh, there's there's this there's this temptation, by the way, for people to get up in a tizzy. About when pastors start calling sin what it is. Um, And I love that illustration. I've spoken of it many times where the the big deacon told the pastor, you you know, after the service, he called him into the back office, the pastor's office, and said, Pastor, you need to stop, you know, talking so harshly and so bluntly about sin. Uh, You got to talk about just nice things and make the congregation feel happy. Well, the pastor thought for a moment and he got up from his desk, went over to a cabinet opened it up and pulled out a brown medicine bottle that said, deadly poison, strychnine. And he sat it on his desk and pulled out of his drawer one of those white sticky labels, you know, the Avery label. And he covered the, the, the strychnine, deadly poison label, covered it up and he wrote on there in a nice red ink, essence of peppermint. And he sat it on his desk. And the, and the pastor said to the old deacon, which one is better? In other words, if we're not willing to call sin what it is and label it correctly, then people are going to drink of it. They're going to take part of it and they're not going to even know they're engaging in deadly sinful behavior. The sound of the trumpeter needs to be clear. And I'm not the pastor that just wants to be blasting away at sinful things. But when you go verse by verse of the Bible, you can't get around it. You got to call sin what it is. Um, you know, uh, in fact, keep your finger here in Isaiah uh, 58 and go with me to 1 Corinthians um, because there's, there's kind of a, a, a parallel there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Now, this is, this is where it gets really interesting um, because, you know, they're talking about a word of knowledge, uh, pardon me, a word of prophecy versus the word of tongues, there in 1 Corinthians 14 and, and Paul's making a case for not speaking in tongues as much because the words you speak in church need to be understood and clear. Um, so check this out, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse six. Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, now brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall it profit you expect except I speak to you either by revelation or knowledge or by prophecy or by doctrine, in other words, teaching. And instructing, correcting, and comforting with the word, speaking words, says it's better. So then he goes on in verse seven, and even the things without life giving sound, whether a pipe or harp, listen, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? Or listen to this, for if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise you, except you utter by the tongues words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For you speak; you shall speak into the air. Paul's making this case: speak clearly, simply, um, make the sound of the trumpet very clear, so that everybody knows what the marching orders are. He says, "How do we know if we're called to battle? If the trumpet's like instead of ta-tula, 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 instead it's like." Eh. If it's just not a very clear sound. I I worry that there's churches across the world today that are afraid to make a clear sound when it comes to things that are called sin and called wickedness in the Bible. And there's the pastors, oh, homosexuality? It's not a clear call. It's not clear. Well, we we, we just are really given to love. Of course we're given to love. But they still haven't answered the, the question, is homosexuality sin? And, and because pastors are afraid to talk about this, the congregation is more confused today than ever. The word makes it perfectly clear. The, the Bible never falls short when it comes to calling out sin for what it is. It's those of us that handle the Bible that fall short. And we need to make that trumpet sound clear. Um, so if you're one who felt like, Brett, you're, you're too brutal on some of these things that you're talking about, It's not my intention to be brutal, it's my intention to be clear because the Bible calls us to do that. Not only here in 1 Corinthians 14, but even here in Isaiah 58, it says, man, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show thy people, my people, their transgression. Now, Brett, you're turning into a fire and brimstone preacher. Well, this is the thing that I love. I get to handle the whole Bible. Not just when the sin is called out, but I guess also talk about God's grace and how he forgives the sinner. He, he loves and forgives the homosexual, or he forgives the greedy, or the glutton, or the winebibber, or the thief, or the liar, or whatever things the Bible calls sins. The Lord, is his mercy endures forever, and his grace is sufficient for you. So I get to be both the bearer of the bad news, but I also, praise the Lord, get to be the bearer of good news, and show people to his grace and his mercy. Uh, make sure, let's give the full counsel of God. God's grace and his mercy won't look that wonderful unless people know what kind of ugliness God has pulled them out of. Here in Isaiah's book, he's given it to Him heavy. He's, man, make the sound of the trumpet clear. Now, he's also saying this because he's about to say, you guys are into your religious acts, coming to the temple, making sacrifices, and he's even gonna call them out on a big issue of fasting, um, and they were doing this stuff because they thought it was holy. Meanwhile, they're sacrificing children on altars, they're worshiping Astrath and doing all these other evil things. And so that gives us kind of an interesting question. Is the Lord interested in our fasting, worshiping, praying, um, lifting hands? Um, the answer is yes and no. And we're gonna see how that works out. Um, he's not into our fasting if we're just sinning and then coming in, acting holy and fasting. Um, It it, it kind of begs the question, is the Lord into our worship? If we're here lifting our hands in church, singing songs of praise, knowing good and well that we're gonna go out on Monday and continue to pick up sins that God calls in his abomination. Should we continue in sin and let grace abound? God forbid. That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul said. Um, The Bible even gives us even a scarier message. Paul told both the Ephesian church and the Galatian church, he said, if you continually practice sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That is to get better and better at your sins. Um, I don't want Athey Creek to be the kind of church where a person can come in week in and week out, hear a good sermon from the Bible, but not be convicted of sin in their lives because we need to be, be doing battle against sin our whole lives. If we're getting better and better at sinning, we're in a very dangerous position, and the trumpeter is not being very clear. And if we're going through well well, I've read my Bible and I came to church, and I lifted my hands and I sang and I wrote notes and took notes. But if you're going out willfully, just continually sinning, 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 then your fasting and your lifting of hands and your writing of notes becomes something that's not good to the Lord. The Lord does not um, love that, and we'll see that right here, and he's gonna use the idea of fasting as sort of the example of that. He starts that in verse three of chapter 58. Wherefore have, you, have we fasted, say, the, uh, say they, and thou seest not, like we've been fasting, Lord, don't you see it? Wherefore uh, have we afflicted our soul, and we have taken, uh, uh, and thou takest no, uh, no knowledge. You're not acknowledging that we're fasting. Behold, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, you fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of the wicked, of wickedness. Uh, you shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? Is God, Is God saying, have I asked you to do this? The answer is no. A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will thou call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Man, here the Lord is asking this rhetorical question through Isaiah the prophet saying, You guys think you're doing something good because you're acting all holy because you're fasting and your faces show that you're fasting and you're you know, putting your body through affliction and you think somehow that's gonna please me? Hmm, it's a rhetorical question and the implication is no, no, and no. God's not into that fast. That's not God's chosen fast. That's, that's an interesting word. Is this the fast that I've chosen? The answer, no. Um, and um, by the way, this was dealt with, with by Jesus uh, the, the, this, this would go all the way through from the time of Isaiah all the way through to the time of Christ. Listen to Matthew chapter 6. There on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, verse 16. He says, moreover, when you fast, now this is important. Um, Jesus is saying when you fast, not if you fast. So should we uh, fast as Christians? Yes, there's a right way to fast. We'll talk about that in a second. But he says when you fast be not like the hypocrites of a sad countenance for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to fast verily I say unto you they have their reward but you when you fast anoint your head and wash your face that thou appear not unto men to fast but unto thy father which is in secret and thy father which sees in secret shall reward thee openly uh, it, was, it was a hip trend in those days. Well, I'm fasting, I'm suffering for the Lord, suffering for the Savior. Um, and they'd make their faces dirty and gaunt. Like they were, I've been fasting, you know, totally hungry and, um, and, and people are like, wow, they're really holy because they're fasting. Look at them, they're skinny and they're, they're, they're like ugly because they're, they're fasting. Jesus said, that's hypocrisy. You're just play acting um, and it means Nothing. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites, he said, but wash your face, you know, comb your hair, <laughs> make yourself look normal, and, and don't do it to be seen of men. It's something that's to be done in secret. So this problem that Isaiah is pointing out, hundreds and hundreds of years before um, you know, the time of Christ, um, you know, Jesus had to deal with the same exact issue. They hadn't changed. Um, now, Um, the next part of this chapter is gonna talk about the the fast that the Lord has chosen. He said, it's not the fast that I've chosen for you to look ugly and gaunt and sad and in misery. That's not, and and if you think, now this is an important part, if you think your fasting is gonna get my attention, that's stupid. (laughs) That's what the Lord's saying here, you know. Um, Are you, middle of verse four, you shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. See, that's one of the misnomers, I think, when people call, have you noticed that there's a a big move where pastors call their churches to fast? Um, Brett, have you ever called us to fast? I have asked us to fast uh, once before in the history of our church. I may do it again, who knows? But I'm not sure we should think that that's a super biblical practice that the, the pastor calls everybody to fast. I'm not saying I'm against that, But I am saying that fasting, Jesus talked about it being kind of a personal thing that you do in secret. And you know, it's funny when we all fast as a group together, I'm not opposed to that. I'm just saying we have to be careful because sometimes we think because we're all fasting and Lord, we're gonna get your attention. Here we are in Portland praying for the revival of Portland. So Lord, we're gonna fast, so do something. But that's not why, that's not the fast that God has chosen. Isaiah lays it out here what the chosen fast of god looks at let's take a look here in uh, chapter 6 uh, 58 verse 6 is he says is not this the fast that i have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke is not is it not to deal thy bread unto the hungry that thou bring the poor that are cast out of thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. The fast that God chooses, interestingly enough, causes you and me to do the right thing. You see, rather than fasting to get God's attention, fasting can be something that puts you in the right position to do what God wants you to do. Fasting is not as much to gain God's credits and say, okay, Lord, I've been fasting, you owe me. Nope. Fasting is to put yourself in a mindset um, of God where God can speak into your life and, and direct you the way he wants you to go and to do that what he wants you to do. He goes on, verse eight, then shall thy light break forth as the morning and thine health shall spring forth speedily and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy reward." Man, the Lord blesses those who fast. So fasting is something that's blessed, but it's gotta be God's chosen fast, not your chosen fast, Um, like the people of Israel. They did this for centuries. Um, It reminds me of Zechariah chapter seven, listen to this. This is exactly what was happening, same thing in Zechariah chapter seven, they, they were f- fasting, weeping, and praying 70 years in a row. Um, they, they did it at a cer- certain time of the month of Chislu. They would, they would fast and weep and mourn. But somebody said, should we keep doing this? In fact, this is what they say. They said, sp- speak to the priests, which were the house of the Lord, the host, and to the prophet saying, should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as we've done for these so many years? Then came the word of the Lord of the host saying, Speak to all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even in those seventy years, did you fast at all, even to me? The answer is no. You did it for yourselves. He says, When you did eat and when you did drink, did you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Should you not hear the word that the Lord has cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited in prosperity? And the word came to Zechariah, to the people saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, execute true judgment, show mercy and compassions every man to his brother and don't oppress the widow nor the fatherless, the stranger nor the poor and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in his heart. But the people refused to listen and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. We wanna fast because we think it looks holy. Or says, you can fast if you want to, but it doesn't mean anything to me. I want you to do these things instead. Be careful, Christian. That can be fasting, but it can also be worshiping. It can be, we can be thinking we're getting God's attention. We're trying to get God's approval. You already have God's approval. What you and I need to be seeking is God's will. What should we be doing that God wants us to do? And fasting is a beautiful anointed vehicle that gets us in the right place to be sensitive to what God wants us to do and what he wants us to be. And there's benefit from fasting that's mentioned right here in our text. Uh, man, there's so much here that I love. You know, it says that, uh, then thy light will break forth like the morning. Your health will spring forth, verse eight. Um, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord will be your reward. Those are some great things. He goes on, Uh, Verse 9, then thou shalt call and the Lord shall answer. See, you're not trying to get the Lord's attention, but in a place of fasting, when you're in the right place, then the Lord will commune and speak with you. There is a place where fasting is where you'll hear from the Lord. You're not doing it so that you can hear from the Lord, but that is one of the natural byproducts of a, of a, a person engaging in God's chosen fast. Um, by the way, uh, if you're interested in this, there's a, a, a great little book, you can read it fairly quickly, called God's Chosen Fast. And you can get it on Amazon or you know whatever, it's easy to read, but it's a great um, description of biblical fasting. And we wanna do God's chosen fast, not our chosen fast. That's the A-B comparison here that Isaiah's making. But he says, man, um, if you call on the Lord, verse nine, the Lord shall answer. And thou shalt cry and he shall say, here I am. If thou thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke and the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul and uh, and then shall thy light arise in obscurity and thy darkness be as the noonday. The Lord shall guide thee continually, satisfy your soul in drought and make fat thy bones and thou shalt be like a watered garden and shalt, um, and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places and shall rise up the foundations of many generations and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. So fasting has massive benefits, uh, even generationally repairing restoring, light, uh, the Lord making your bones fat. I love this um, language in verse 11. Thou shalt be like a watered garden. Um, this reminds me of Jeremiah 31, 12 that talks. Jeremiah and Isaiah were somewhat contemporaries. I wonder if they talked about this. The Lord wants to make you like a watered garden. That's a phrase they both used. And, um, and that's a great image. A watered garden is a fruitful garden. So the, the, the prophet Isaiah is saying, you guys are fasting, but you're doing it all wrong. You need to not do your version of fasting. You need to do God's version of fasting, uh, my chosen fast. And then all these other benefits will be part of your faith and your walk. Man, it, can I challenge you to read verses six through 12 and really meditate on the blessings that fasting brings. And then pray about when the next time you, the Lord would have you to take a time away fasting. It could be for one meal. Uh, it could be for you know a week of meals. Uh, you could be like Jesus and go 40 days and 40 nights, but uh, you better know what you're doing if you're doing that one. Um, and uh, the thing is, you can fast of different kinds of fasts. Maybe it's just uh, denying yourself certain kinds of food. But if you're doing it for health reasons, do it for health reasons, but don't pretend to do it for spiritual reasons. This is sort of like one of the problems. You know, I'm on the fasting diet, you know, where you uh, intermittent fasting and, and you're thinking, I'm doing something that God wants me to do. Nope, you're just on a diet. Whether it works or not, who knows? Probably not, because none of them do long-term. <laughs> but but uh, no, you uh, don't send me emails on all that. I, I, I know all of that stuff about uh, dieting and all that stuff. But that's not what fasting for the Lord is. It's not some health thing where you're trying to get more nutritious and all that. Fine if you wanna do that for health, but don't pretend that that's the same thing as a spiritual fast. That's your chosen fast versus God's chosen fast. I hope you understand what I'm saying there. Uh, Some people think they're doing something spiritual when they're really just trying to get in shape and intermittent fasting. So watch out for that uh, tendency. Um, All that to say, uh, the end of this chapter, verse 13, if thou turn away um, thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable and shall honor him not doing thine own ways nor finding thine own pleasure nor speaking thine own words. Then thou shalt delight thyself in the Lord and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The key word here is delighting in in the Sabbath. This is something, again, that they got wrong. They got the fasting wrong, but they also got the Sabbath wrong. Where they were you know, begrudgingly making the rules about the Sabbath. And Jesus would also come and try to correct their wrongdoing in this. Remember when Jesus said, you guys, you're missing the point. You know, Man was not made for the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath day was made for man. It was meant to be a blessing. And that's what Isaiah the prophet says. If you delight in the Sabbath, then the Lord's gonna bless you. Um, this reminds me of sort of the begrudging things Christians still do today. Whether it's giving of your tithe and offering, well, I best I better give of my tithe because the Bible says I better. Uh, man, the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. It's not; it's a delight to be able to give to the Lord. That's got to be our heart. Otherwise, it's sort of you cancel out the blessing that comes from giving. The same thing of going to church. Well, the Bible says I'm supposed to not forsake the assembling of ourselves. So. We better get back to Athey Creek now that the COVID thing's winding down or whatever. I hope everybody comes back to church someday. Um, But if if you're doing it begrudgingly, you're missing the whole point. Church, tithing, worshiping, all that stuff's supposed to be a get-to, not a got-to. And it's something we do as a response because of the goodness of the Lord. And that's what he's saying here, that the Sabbath was meant to be a delight. And those who delight in the Sabbath, the Lord says here, he, uh, he's going to bless them. Well, we've only got a few more minutes, but we can tackle this chapter 59. It's another about the sins of the Jews and the wickedness. Uh, but then that sets us up nicely for next week to be able to talk about chapter 60, the beauty and the light and the glory that's coming. So let's knock this chapter out, and then we'll call it a night. Chapter 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. This is one of the most, by perhaps me, I can't say this for other pastors, but one of the most quoted scriptures of the Old Testament. The reason I quote this Isaiah 59 verse 1 and 2 so much is because it describes the problem with humanity. Uh, From Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden, sin separates them from God. The rest of the Bible is about how God restores his relationship to humanity um, uh, because we're separated. Because the Lord's hand is not short that he cannot touch you. His ear is not deaf that he cannot hear, but it's your sin that separates us from God. So God, what did he do? He made a reconciliation for us through Jesus Christ. He reconciled us and brought us back together that's what the Bible's all about, solving the problem of humanity and their sin and their separation from God. That's why Jesus, when he died on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That separation Jesus never knew because he never sinned. But when all the sin of humanity was put on Christ, suddenly Jesus felt this, the repercussion of sin in a certain way that made him feel forsaken, even though um, he would rise from the praise the Lord, and save us from our own sins. This is what sin does. Sin separates you from God. It defin- it, it, it makes your prayers not fly. Sin makes it so the Lord cannot touch you. Um, it, it divides you up from the Lord. That's why we need to repent and for, be forgiven of our sins. Um, by the way, I did a teaching on this these two verses way back in 2005 that I didn't um, do this time through. I probably should have. But um, we'll put that up on the teaching somewhere uh, from back in 2005, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Big, important stuff. Uh, Verse 3, For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity." They hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eateth of their eggs dieth and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity and the acts of violence in their hands. Their feet run to evil and make the haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. This is a a very clear description of the world we live today. We sit around and scratch our heads. Why are people burning stuff down and, and punching people for no reason and smashing people in the head with skateboards? Why are people shooting people for no reason? What's going on? This is a description of sinful humanity. Um, and there's some ugly uh, picture here. You know, the cockatoo eggs weave the spider's web. He that eats their eggs dies, and crushes the breaketh into viper. It's it's this um, this ugliness of just sin. And It kind of reminds me of the the uh, some of the bugs I've seen in other countries. There was a um, there's a bug over in our where we have a bunch of church folks that are Aitii Creekers over in Vanuatu. Um, and um, they've got a lot of big bugs over there. But one of the most crazy bugs is called a millipod over there. When, last time I was in Vanuatu, man, um, th- those millipods are freaky. They, they, they come out in the grass at night, so you don't walk barefoot. Because if you get uh, bit or stung by the pinchers of these millipods, you, your leg could get swollen huge, and you might even lose your leg or your foot. Like it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. Um, people have died even from infection from these bugs. And I, Tad said, yeah, these millipods are pretty ugly and they're pretty big. And I said, well, we'll see, you know. Sure enough, we were out walking one, one night in the grass and we saw one, Tad said, millipod. And, all, and we all gathered around. It was about an eight inch long millipod. It's not furry and cuddly. Um, it was like, um, it had more of a scorpion type shell. It was like armored. And it's got like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these little strong little legs and these two big pinchers. And, the, and as soon as we saw it, the, the Nivanawatus, the local guys there, I didn't do this, but they took, um, they took, they got a stick and pinched the head of this thing down, and the thing was just, you can't kill them, They're, like you crush them, and they just keep coming back, and they run after you, like with an aggressive um, uh, posture. So they took and pulled, they got a stick and pulled the pinchers out of this millipod, and then they threw it on me, and it was crawling all over me, uh, because once the pinchers are gone, I guess they have no way of... Biting you or getting the venom in you. But you could feel these muscular little legs just all over your body. And, and then you'd try to kill it and it just keeps coming after you. Um, and it's, it's about as freaky as it gets. Um, and um, it took us like 10 minutes to try to kill this thing. And that's what I picture here. This is what people do when they're engaging in sin. that's just this poisonous, deadly stuff that's hard to kill and it doesn't have any good. There's nothing redeeming. You can't even make clothes out of their spider webs. That's, that's what's being said here. It's just the ugliness of wickedness. Verse nine, therefore is, is judgment far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity, for brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope, as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. These are the people that are in sin. Groping for the wall reminds me of that story I told you last week about the couple that were honeymooning and they were diving in the USS Coolidge there in Vanuatu, that sunken ship. And they went off into that room where they thought they could get out. But when the silt got stirred up, it got pitch black. They couldn't see anything and they felt the walls but they couldn't get out. Perfect picture of what the Bible's saying here. That's what your sin does. It traps you and will ultimately doom you. Verse 11, we roar all like bears and mourn like sore doves. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far off from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Do we have that problem today? People speaking things that are false, man. Verse 14, and judgment is turned away backward and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey, and the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. This is the condition of the world today. We're we're not that different from Isaiah's time. When you read verses 9 through 15, you see basically uh, our culture in the mirror right here. So, verse 16, as he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, therefore his arm brought salvation unto him. And his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies and to the islands or the nations. um, He will uh, repay recompense so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and, from, uh, and his glory from the rising of the sun, that is from the east, and the enemy shall come in like a flood and the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Now this is great because we're talking about one who's going to come and destroy the wicked, but along with that, what's he also going to do? He's going to redeem the righteous. This is none other than the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's speaking specifically of restoring the Jewish people, the people that Isaiah is speaking to here. And he's going to now mention him as not only the one armed with righteousness and all this, but he's called the Redeemer, verse 20. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion and say to them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee and my words, which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of thy mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord from henceforth and forever. So this is really sort of what's going to happen. The people are wrapped up and engaged in sin. And the Lord says, but I'm going to redeem you. And if you follow my word and make that part of your, what your, comes out of your mouth, confession with the mouth. Um, You'll be redeemed and saved, even though you're in all those transgressions and sins. The Jews right now are largely in rebellion, and um, the world is largely in rebellion. But those that turn, I I want you to see the language there. It says, those who turn, the word in the the New Testament is repent. Repentance means to do an about face and go the opposite direction. Um, The difference is, you know, oftentimes not that we're better than anybody else if we're redeemed, the difference is we're moving away from sin. We're turning away and trying to fight against our sinful tendencies. The, the sinner that's just gladly taking up sin and practicing sin, the word practicing, it's like trying to get better at it. Like if you're out in the backyard practicing your baseball swing, you know, throw the ball up there, swing, you know, you're trying to practice at getting better. Uh, if you're doing that with your sin, then man, you're on the wrong side. But if you repent, you're saying, I'm not practicing at getting better at sin. I'm practicing at running from sin, moving away from sin. That's repentance, an about-face, and you're, you're, you're fighting against your own sinful tendencies. And if you repent and confess Christ, our Redeemer, and say, Lord, I believe you died on the cross for my sins, you'll be saved. And that's what the next part of this book of Isaiah is gonna give to us next week. And we'll see that in chapter 60. So there we did it. We made it through three chapters tonight. Praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, these definitions of the sinful and the wicked um, are troubling because we see it all too much, Lord, in our culture with the people that live in these United States and really around the world today. Lord, as we become more and more aware of what the world is into and what it's doing, we see just the utter wickedness and what an abomination it is to you. Lord, forgive our nation for being pro-abortion and um, forgive us for just embracing things that you call sin. Lord, we, we have tried to redefine what's right and wrong and we've made that which is good or evil relative to each person. But Lord, we acknowledge that it's all your, your call. When you call something righteous, it is righteous when you call something evil, it's evil. Forgive us, Lord, for not um, being in agreement with who you are and what you've declared. I pray that we would be a people of repentance and that we'd walk in your truth, Lord. I pray that we'd be all about your mercy and your grace and the forgiveness you give us, Lord. Without that, we'd be in total despair, without any hope of heaven. But because you came and died on the cross for our sins, anyone who confesses and believes. In your son Jesus, that he died, that he rose again, will be saved. How thankful, what a glorious truth. I pray as we get into this next section of Isaiah that we just find ourselves just rejoicing because of your great mercy and your great grace. So bless the congregation tonight for the time they put in. I pray that you'd give it back to them in ways that would just be glorious, that tomorrow they'd be better walking with you, more successful at what they're doing, shining their lights before all men, Lord. Bless your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.